0: Hey folks, this is Michael. For this episode, Stefan and I interviewed Jessica Coburn, who is a lecturer in environmental science at Rhodes University in Grahamstown, South Africa. Jessica grew up on a farm in the province of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. We talked a bit about how her experiences there influenced her future career choices. We also talked about the path she's taken to a more interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary socio-ecological space in her work. Having co-led a foreign study program in Southern Africa for several years, I was particularly interested in talking to Jessica about her empirical work, in which, among other things, she has examined the possibility for collaboration among a set of heterogeneous user groups at the watershed scale. And she has also clearly done some deep thinking about the ethical implications of this kind of work. Thanks for joining. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. So actually, before jumping into the current moment, I was I also saw that you have uh, an interesting background growing up in so KwaZulu Natal with a farmer as a father and a teacher as a mother, and so I'm, I'm I would love to just hear about
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know your origin story as you understand it.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I yeah I grew up on a farm. My dad works for a big seed company, and um, we. We grew up sort of playing in the mealy fields, we call them in South Africa, and swimming in the dams on our farm. And my parents are also both passionate conservationists. This is also fairly typical of of environmental scientists' origin stories, I think, of having parents with that kind of um, passion. Yeah. So we spent a lot of our holidays in um, nature reserves and national parks, bird watching. My dad's an avid butterfly collector and involved in a lot of butterfly conservation work. Um, and at the same time, I think, uh, my mother's influence has also shaped me to be this more kind of social ecological researcher. She's a teacher, but she's also deeply involved in a lot of local community development work and, um, fundraising for charities and outreach activities through school and church and has always, um, brought that, that emphasis on social justice and on on engaging with people where they're at, into into what we what we were discussing as as a family growing up, and particularly growing up in the the late bit of the apartheid era in South Africa, that perspective um, was very important, and I'm I'm really grateful for to my parents for for having raised us in a way that was counter to the kind of trend in white middle class culture at the time. So um they they had we have we grew up on a farm, and so we had people working for us who were black people and in that at the time when I was a young child, um there were very stark divisions between black and white people socially geographically economically everything right. um but my parents were able to to find ways to to try to, I wouldn't say transcend, but to try to breach those divisions in various ways. So my mother is a fluent speaker of Isu Zulu, which is one of the indigenous languages where I grew up. And she um, she's always made an effort to make friends with, with Zulu speakers. And so we grew up knowing Zulu people as friends of our family and visiting them in their homes. And going to what was called the homelands back then. So these were the areas that were set aside by the apartheid government for people of color, black people, as we call them in South Africa. Um, And we actually visited people in those areas. And it was the kind of thing where if I, sometimes at school I would mention where I was at the weekend and my classmates would be like, oh, you went there. Isn't that dangerous? Isn't that scary? Um, And so I think this, this part of my upbringing, which is something especially, that I'm especially grateful to my mother for, is, is something that has, I think, shaped very much my perspective in terms of the socioeconomic challenges, the social justice challenges that we have in South Africa. So as much as um, I grew up with a strong influence from my dad as a conservationist and a passion for the environment, um, it quickly became apparent to me that I would never want to do work that was divorced from kind of the realities of social development and those challenges in South Africa. So I'm really grateful to have kind of found my way into a career where where I can start supporting work that is trying to address both the ecological sustainability and the social sustainability and social justice challenges that we face in South Africa.
0: Yeah, I mean, so there was this enormous transformation going from the apartheid era to the post-apartheid era. Do you see in your own current work, uh, An interest in transformation as well, social, ecological?
1: I'm actually grappling with it in a paper that I'm busy writing. So, when we speak about transformation in South Africa, it's very much focused on that social, political kind of transformation in mm-hmm. terms of, for example, representation. So, universities are under a lot of pressure to ensure that they employ and um, provide you know, opportunities for Black South Africans. And when we use the word transformation, we almost always at the moment are talking about a race based kind of transformation where we want to see universities, workplaces um, to be more representative of the country's population. So there's, that's a very strong narrative around transformation that, that we're with in terms of the university context. And then taking that kind of then seeing that in the sustainability literature and the social ecological literature there's a big push for transformation. In a In a more kind of sustainability sense it's it's interesting to try and see where those two things overlap because they do um, but right. they they also feel like at times they're they've strongly pulling in in two slightly separate directions as well so for example, in South Africa when we talk about transformation in the kind of political sense social political sense um that often seems in contradiction with environmental sustainability goals because we're looking for development and growth and creating jobs so that we can address the inequities of the past. And a lot of that drive is coming with a capitalist agenda around, you know, extractive resources and heavy industry and all of that. So we're struggling a bit with those kind of narratives pulling in different directions around transformation, I think. So interestingly, out of that, one of the things that's come out is is quite a, uh, an interesting conversation around just transitions. So um, the just transitions work in South Africa is seen quite a lot of traction, for example, in the mining sector where we're talking about needing to transform to more renewable energy sources And what does that mean for the workforce and for who gets left behind if we do that without considering upskilling people from coal miners to being solar panel technicians or whatever it is. So the just transitions um, kind of narrative, I think, is kind of sitting in a way in between those two different transformations, um, conversations. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of one example that we've seen on the Dartmouth's Foreign Study Program for which we go to Matat, Matatiel, and there's... Uh, a lot of concern about wattle is this invasive species there, and there are some folks there that are trying to develop uh, essentially charcoal value chains, so cut down the wattle and turn it into charcoal and A lot of the students that we bring on the program there worry that this is kind of using a capitalistic market mentality in order to solve this problem
1: Does mm-hmm.
0: that sound similar to the kind of tensions that you're talking about is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because one of the biggest drivers of transformation in South Africa, or perceived drivers in terms of that socio political and socio economic transformation, is a drive for job creation and for entrepreneurship, for people to be able to get increased income into their households so we can kind of balance out the inequalities, socio economic inequalities. And so that often ends up looking like a kind of capitalist commercial business type drive. Um, But at the same time, I think there's also within sort of the space of just transitions and also discussions around green economy, there is now growing interest in looking at green jobs or kind of green livelihoods and trying to create um, job opportunities that that don't kind of go against sustainability principles and don't further degrade environmental resources, etc., so that is that is coming up, but the mainstream thing is very much still about um yeah, sharing sharing the pie by creating more um more jobs and, and more growth, economic growth. Yeah. So that is it is a difficult tension that we sit in. And I think it's an important one for us to discuss because I think um it's it can it's aligned in some ways, I think, also with the kind of climate justice movement where there's this conversation about how in the north, the global north, everyone's okay now and we can start talking about decarbonizing and degrowing, whereas in the global south everybody's not yet okay and um, okay in terms of you know economic um, levels of, of income etc. So I think for us from the global south we need to kind of tell that story and share that story of how it is hard to To reach those kind of sustainability goals that we're looking for whilst also making sure that nobody's left behind and that we address the inequalities in terms of wealth and income that that are very real.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you think that, you know, the business or, or market-oriented approach can be saved? I mean, one thing, one of the things I do, I don't know if I say I worry about it, but I wonder about it is, you know, once a student of mine, say, labels something as, capitalist driven or something with a with a capital C, right? Suddenly mm-hmm. we've lumped a whole bunch of potentially very heterogeneous things into one big pot that we think is yeah. all bad. Honestly, when I hear about the the commodity chains for charcoal, I haven't had like a negative visceral reaction to that. It seems like something that's potentially, you know, at least win-win-lose
1: yeah, I think, I mean, I'm always trying to promote a more pluralistic approach to how we address, how we find solutions to things. I think we're also a little bit obsessed with kind of silver bullet solutions and not ready to really think about a more diverse basket of solutions for different contexts. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I also think that's what we need to be thinking more about is the, the realities in certain places. So in a place like Matatial, where you're talking about in, rural, in the rural Eastern Cape, People are burning wood in their homes to to fuel their um, to to you know to cook and to keep the homes warm. And charcoal is an improved situ an improved source of fuel because it's less um, smoky. Um, and also back to the kind of capitalist thing, it's I would say, I don't know I almost feel like selling charcoal within a rural community from one member of that same community to another is one of the less bad forms of capitalism if right. I can say that because it's staying within the local value chain and it's, it's benefiting local people. And it's, yeah. So I think that's, there's so many nuances and I mean, there's also so much we as environmentalists need to get over our kind of othering of people who are supposedly capitalists if we're serious Interesting. about working yes. together with people. So I think, yeah, like, Poo-pooing anything that's supposedly capitalist is pretty unhelpful. And I've had to learn that a lot in another project where I'm involved in where we're looking at, it's a GEF Global Environment Facility funded project looking at how we can improve the, um, or grow the investment into restoration of what we call ecological infrastructure in South Africa. So that's basically restoring catchment areas for water security. And we're trying to find a more diverse set of, of funding mechanisms to, to fund that kind of work because currently it's primarily funded by the government and it's an unsustainable source of funding for the long run. So they were looking at engaging with banks and with large investors and private sector partners. And there's just the there's this constant reminder of that we need to stop othering business and private sector as the evil people. And if we really want to work together, we need to realize that there's a lot we need to learn as well as environmentalists and humble ourselves um, in terms of being able to partner with people and have those conversations. So yeah, completely agree with you there.
0: Yeah. It's so sneaky, right? I mean, we, a lot of the the discourse and the rhetoric that I live in celebrates diversity in a very broad sense, Mm It's not always unpacked what we mean by that at certain times, but then you do see, and I think othering is the exact word for it. There's there's a dismissal of perspectives of, of certain types of folks, rather ironically and unfortunately within a context that formally is celebrating uh, an embracement of different mm-hmm. perspectives, et cetera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it, it does seem to me like um, this kind of either quasi-universal or, or pretty much universal challenge that humans face is as we... You know, uh, frequently we motivate ourselves by a narrative, and a narrative has heroes and villains, and that's kind of how we make sense of our own lives and what we're doing a lot of the time is, okay, these are the bad things, and we need to combat them, and that's actually how we get motivated. But then how do you actually be self-aware about some of the arbitrariness of how your brain has decided, like, who's good and who's bad? Yeah. (laughs) um, Okay, so I'd love to also take a step back and and ask you a bit about... um, your educational path, and I mean, so we've had a theme on this podcast of of talking to folks that are in what we can call a social ecological space who started more in a uh, at least formally an ecological space. I appreciated you talking about how you're, in your upbringing you were you were sensitized to a lot of these things from an early age. Um, but I saw right, so you've got um, bachelor's in botany and entomology, and a master's in zoology, and then a PhD in environmental science, and then. I think you expressed this, so, but correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a bit of a shift formally t- into a more social ecological space. So yeah. I'd be interested in um, hearing how that went for you. So, I mean, how you decided to get the degrees you initially did, and then how did the transition into this more inter- interdisciplinary space uh, work for you?
1: Yeah, sure. I've actually um, just recently sort of unpacked that story um, in introducing myself to the students i 've just started teaching i 've just taken up a post as a lecturer in environmental science and um, I found it quite useful to reflect on how I got to be where I was because I sat in the very lecture benches fifteen years ago, where the students are sitting that i 'm teaching now, so that prompted yeah. me to to kind of uh, track the story a little bit for myself in a more careful way. So I came to Rhodes University, which is where I am now as an undergrad student and enrolled for a bSC and That was quite strongly driven by um, my kind of interest in conservation and environmental issues. Um, And I was hoping to do a degree um, in in journalism and zoology because I felt that communicating around environmental issues would be important. But those two subjects clashed directly in the undergrad, so I wasn't able to do that. So then the decision was to just get a basic foundation in science and then... um, do a journalism postgraduate diploma or something. But even thinking about how it was that I came to science was interesting because now when I look at what I'm doing and the kind of disciplinary journals I'm reading and the field in which I'm publishing, it's actually more of a geography sort of field and Mm -hmm. a lot of humanities and social science um, theories and bodies of work are influencing what I do. And I wonder why I didn't take more of that route earlier on. And it's, I realised that there was a very strong bias in my school, but also actually by my parents, that if you could do science, if you were good at getting good enough marks or grades, as you guys would say for science, then you should do science, and that BA as a humanities or social science degree was kind of the fallback option. Interesting. In in retrospect, I think I would have done really well with a social science degree in humanities around sort of you know geography, anthropology, sociology, Um, but that was seemed to be the lesser option at the time. So I took a science degree um, and I survived it. Chemistry was a bit of a stumbling block, but I made (laughs) it through. (laughs) Uh, Those were maybe the early signs that I was never really going to be a full-on natural scientist. Um, And then it was actually during my entomology course that I realized that I really enjoyed every time something came up in the entomology course around applied entomology, like pest management or forensics or... Um, cultural entomology, we also did a course on cultural entomology. Those were the pieces that really got me excited. It was where I could see the interface between the science of entomology and the kind of social science and the social context. And so in my um, honours project, or my third year project, I did a cultural entomology research project, which I really enjoyed. I connected a kind of mini or tried to construct a mini dictionary of Isuzu insect names. So I interviewed about 60 Isuzu speakers. Um, about insects and trying to gather the names as a kind of indigenous knowledge contribution and I really enjoyed that and, and was my first kind of dabbling into social science methods and yeah so I kind of transitioned from then onwards I think more and more towards an interdisciplinary um, science and my master's even though it was zoology it was very much an interdisciplinary study where I did I was looking at pest management and the implementation of of a novel more sustainable pest management system with sugarcane farmers and I studied both the farmers and their knowledge system and their perceptions and attitudes towards pest management um, as well as the pest itself and how it interacts um, with natural predators in the wetland systems and also we did some model Model farms where we trialed the method. So I did ecological surveys with um, in those model farms, and at the same time interviewed the farmers engaged. And worked closely with them to to understand how they were or weren't taking up this method. So that was a really nice um, space for me to explore the kind of social ecological interface. And I'm really grateful to my supervisors for my masters too, who gave me the space to do that and to. To, to get a zoology degree, even though half of it was, was social science. Um, yeah, and then I think in my PhD, I, I decided that I, I wanted to work in the social ecological space, but felt the need to really focus on developing my skills, primarily in social science methods from then onwards, having felt that I would got a good basis in the ecological and biological sciences, I wanted to really focus on, in terms of methodology at least, and also theory on, on the social sciences. So. Um, Georgina Candle was my main supervisor and um Shiona Shackleton and Matthieu Rocher were my co-supervisors and they were also brilliant in terms of just encouraging me to explore the edges of, of what was available and um to to design a project that was that was new and different but that was still rigorous and um, yeah, I really enjoyed that space to to figure things out and try out new things and engage also very closely with practitioners in the research, um, which was which felt very important to me. Um, having grown up, as I said, on a farm and in a rural community, the need to engage very actively with people on the ground has always been something that I felt strongly about. And I was grateful mm. to, to be able to do that in my PhD.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, so there's... So, I was actually a philosophy major in undergrad and really loved it. My dad told me many years later that he did wonder what I was going to do next um, (laughs) as I was taking all these courses. And my favorite course, my two favorite courses actually, one was a philosophy of science class and the other was a philosophy of art class. Better than the art history class, which I could just not stay awake in, to be honest. They would turn off the lights (laughs) at like eight in the morning. So, I saw this term, uh, critical realist philosophy, that you you study this critical realist philosophy, and it, it, it got all my old. 20 year old neurons from undergrad going, but I couldn't quite make sense of it. So I, I'm, if it's something interesting to talk about, it seemed like it was an important term to you in the, in the liter- the material about you that I was looking at. Could you, could you unpack that a bit for us? Like tell us what role that idea plays for you in your work?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so when I started my PhD and I framed it within the broad social ecological systems field, um, and had made this commitment to to using social science research methods i realized quite quickly how important it was for me to clearly understand what philosophy of science or paradigm was underpinning my work and so i read around the different paradigms and i realized for the first time that i had been a positivist until then <laughs> and <laughs> like Oh dear, what an evil person I've been until now. How much to change this? because let's be honest, how much do we marginalize positivists, uh, those of us who found our way out of positivism. It's quite nasty, I think. Oh, it's a hobby. <laughs> yeah. It's talk, talk about othering. It's
0: like, yeah. Yeah, goodness.
1: exactly. So, I actually I'm teaching some students on Wednesday about research paradigms and I'm having to really prepare myself mentally to not other and ostracize the those people were. Those people. In positivist <laughs> <paradigm>. <laughs> yeah, so having acknowledged that I had been a positivist and that I was probably going to have to get out of that um, because of the kinds of questions I was asking and the kinds of theories I was drawing on, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was trying to explore the different social science paradigms that are out there. And um, to me, they all have their place but i needed to find something that worked for me in terms of how i see the world and how i see myself in the world as a researcher and um for that uh, p- positivism didn't fit very well because i feel i feel that it's important for us to be able to interpret things together with people and make sense of data in a more nuanced and kind of uh, fairly relativist way if you like
0: just can i ask yeah. you it occurs to me actually that i think some listeners would appreciate hearing just what like a what you think positivism is for you, like when?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, so I've actually been looking up some materials to try and teach this. I feel like you've caught me a little bit off guard, but I think if I were to try and put it in a nutshell, positivists see the world as um, something that we can measure and understand fully with our science. And the tools and methods used by positivists um, assume that one can generate a complete truth about something, um, whereas, Objectively. Or- yeah, in an objective way, and that um, yeah, we can we can get to a point where we've measured things enough and, and observed them enough to be able to say with confidence what reality is about. Got it. Whereas constructivist is kind of a far extreme. Much of a lot of um, social science researchers in the kind of postmodern. Um, space are constructivists or relativists who say that there's no ultimate truth. Everything is relative. Everything is based on our interpretations. Everything is a social construct and is is based on how we've constructed it in our own minds. And so there's no way we can ever come to some sort of ultimate truth. And in many cases that's led to a lot of kind of um, apathy and uh, inability to act because we don't have enough knowledge or information okay
0: that's okay yes that's very yeah. inter- okay yep yep mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> well so, bit, those yeah. are
1: kind of the two extremes carry on, sorry carry on
0: <laughs> well no but I mean this is like I remember I don't want to derail this because this is fantastic but I like, mean <laughs> you know this this challenge of I remember you know being in a philosophy class in undergrad and my professor like proved to me in quotes that like induction is impossible we can't learn from experience and I was just like well should I get up tomorrow like you know like is the sun going to come up? You know, it's like these, the, the ways in which our clever <laughs> yeah. brains just can convince us yeah. that we're just, I should just like, stay in bed all day. Like, it's like, goodness yeah. gracious, I should probably not follow that then. Like, I'm, I think I should get up like any, any yeah. philosophy or conclusion that says I shouldn't get out of bed at some point. Yeah. Like, something went wrong.
1: Yeah. And also that you as a scientist actually don't have anything to contribute because right. there's no way we'll ever get to enough of a truth to be able to act. So this is obviously I'm caricaturing it and I'm sure it, I know many of my colleagues are well-meaning and successful constructivist researchers. So I am giving an extreme version of it, but this was part of me trying to understand this space for myself. Your process, yep. My own process. And I didn't want to go that way. And so the two for me that kind of sit more in the middle are pragmatism and realism. And pragmatism um is very much about sort of problem focused research, solving problems, and um being able to do research for the sake of action, rather than research for the sake of research. Um, again, I'm oversimplifying it, but that was roughly how I interpreted the bits that I read about pragmatism, which made quite a lot of sense to me, but there was a point at which for me pragmatism didn't go deeply enough into the roots of of knowledge and how we generate knowledge and how we understand our position in the world, which as someone who had come from From a biological science into a social science space, I felt that I needed something richer and deeper to understand my own position in the research, which realism then offered me and critical realism as a particular form of realism. And I think it was also somewhat serendipitous in that I have colleagues at a research center just down the drag here at Rhodes University, the Environmental Learning Research Center, who work a lot with critical realism and I met one of the PhD students from there and I read bits of her PhD and I was really inspired by how she used this this research philosophy um, to frame her research but also drew on a lot of the theoretical um, tools in critical realism to to do the kind of analysis in her research so that and then I was able to attend a research school there on critical realism and engage with some of some really good scholars working in the environmental education field using critical realism. And I found it really appealing. Just helped me, help me to find myself in the research, helped me to frame my research in a thorough way from a philosophical perspective. And one of the things I appreciate the most about a critical realist perspective is that it is a gen, it's a generous philosophy. So it it understands the world as real. So it means that um, as opposed to constructivism where everything is kind of in our heads. Um, everything is real and has its own kind of identity. Um, but then in, where it's different to positivism is that it says our knowledge of that world is limited and we will never be able to understand reality fully. So it means that we as researchers have quite a humble position in terms of our role, but we can get to a point of understanding it enough to act And critical realism also calls itself an emancipatory science in that it seeks to bring about change through science. So yeah, I can ramble on about it for a long time, but for me it just it felt a good fit for what I was trying to do. And I think the third sort of thing that I want to just say about critical realism, which is useful, is that it also has a systems ontology. So those of us who've worked a lot with systems thinking and social ecological systems, complex adaptive systems as a kind of worldview as a framing for our work, um, critical realism sits very nicely alongside a systems ontology or a systems way of understanding the world. So that also really appealed to me because I was drawing on a lot of that kind of literature and I could kind of, I felt that critical realism um, was a good companion in terms of the philosophy and the theoretical depth that it brought into my research.
0: I mean, that's extraordinarily well said. I love the idea of a generous philosophy like that it's an adjective we don't usually smack onto that noun but it's 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 very
2: um <laughs>
1: yeah and i just i just like to say one more thing sorry because there is also and i've had this conversation with some of my colleagues as we've been trying to write a paper drawing on critical realism to underpin kind of uh, multi-case study comparison and there is also a very strong kind of evangelist streak amongst critical realists without which i want to acknowledge and I'll try to distance myself from it, but I probably won't succeed because I'm sounding very um, enthusiastic about it. But there is a lot of, um, I think, the philosophers of science the ones who aren't necessarily applying those philosophies I think get very excited and hit up and um, enthusiastic about their philosophies and get into big fights I mean the paradigm wars we all know about them they were pretty and are pretty bitter and I don't really want to go there but the point I'm making is that I have found very useful ways to apply this particular philosophy of science in social ecological research and that's that's the advantage for me and that's why I speak very enthusiastically about it because I think it can be really useful, especially for those of us doing social science research in this space. I think that the systems ontologies and the systems philosophies that we draw on have come very much from a strong kind of technical positivist perspective in many ways and we lack some of the theoretical depth um, that, that's needed for the social science that we're doing. So that was another reason for me yeah. Sorry, I needed to just put that little piece out there yes, because I know there's a little bit of tension sometimes about critical realists kind of bashing people over the heads with their philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: it strikes me that, um, so I'm part of an interdisciplinary environmental uh, PhD program here, and I would love it if all of our students went through a process like the one you just described. I mean, I think it should be a part mm-hmm. of standard PhD education is that you take a some kind of what you could call it a philosophy of of doing mm. science class where you kind of have mm. to position yourself. You have to decide yeah. as a part of, as a part of your toolkit, but ultimately mm. a part of like you're deciding what your identity as a scientist is. Mm. It, I think it's necessary and we all kind of do it implicitly and less well. Mm. Uh, without yeah.
1: that. Yeah. Mm. No, I agree. And I think it's so important for us to be able to have conversations across disciplines for us to have had this self-reflection process. Um, because I think we misunderstand each other a lot without even realizing it.
0: Absolutely.
1: I was at a workshop with some economists last year and they were talking about data and I was talking about data and they were talking about frameworks and I was talking about frameworks and I suddenly realized that we are talking about data and frameworks in very different ways. <laughs> yeah. And if we don't appreciate the different underlying philosophies that we hold, it's very difficult to kind of have those conversations but. About the differences between all disciplines
0: yeah, I mean, I think even within a discipline, right, like I've had arguments with people about property rights, yeah
1: right
0: or yeah, yeah. you could pick many examples um, yeah. Stefan, do you want to jump
2: in or i'm I'm happy to keep going it's up to you yeah, I'm happy to to jump in there. I can say just to add on to that real quick, was I think many people the the use of the term of the toolbox approach is is pretty useful, and that is something which can helped show that there is a plurality of different ways of mm-hmm. thinking and different types mm-hmm. of research paradigms. And I think mm-hmm. many people, uh, almost similar to your own uh, background, was you come up through a system, you're not even aware that there's a different <laughs> type of way of thinking, that there's a different construct. There's a difference between constructivism and positivism. And, mm-hmm. and then you have all these more meso, meso-level theories like critical realism, which tries to tie different things together. Um, and I can also add that I'm reading now a book by one of your fellow South Africans uh, oh, yeah? Mark Swilling he just published oh, a nice. book called The Age of Sustainability Just Transitions in a Complex World ah,
1: awesome. and
2: he really continues this discussion uh about the need to move towards you know polythinking and and to look at these more meso level theories which move away from kind of positivism and modernism and postmodernism and social constructivism mm-hmm and moving towards uh, a more pluralistic understanding of, of sustainability challenges. And it, it's a fascinating book. I'm only a few chapters in, but I can recommend for those who are interested in the topics we've just been talking about, he's also thinking about that. It's, it's a very yeah. interesting read.
1: He'd be an amazing person to host on your podcast if you can get hold of him. He's yeah. hard to get hold of, I think, but he'd be an awesome guest, I think, as well.
2: I've, I've reached out to him and I haven't heard okay. him back yet. But I'll, I'll keep in mind. <laughs> okay. he, he seems like a very fascinating thinker. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: Stefan, your point reminds me of, of how cultures sometimes work, right? When, you, when you're in a culture, the norms of that culture are generally invisible to you, because it's just what you do. Mm. Yeah. And, and you really mm-hmm. have to be exposed to a different way of doing things to be sensitized to just the way that you do things in your own culture. And in fact, it doesn't have mm. to be that way, but it's impossible to really not. The most difficult things to see are the ones that are right in front of your nose.
2: Yeah, kind of yeah. gets it gets to a discussion about you know the benefits of being a specialist versus the benefits of being a generalist, mm-hmm. and I think there's somewhere where you can meet in the middle, which seems to be uh, more optimal, or people can specialize in either one while knowing that the other the other person exists or the other side does exist at right. the same time. I think where the, the imbalance is now is that you're the specialist without realizing that there are other people who are generalists who can help connect you to other ways of thinking, or that simply there are specialists in other and other paradigms. Yeah. It it was interesting. The way that you have on your Twitter and also in your short bio is you use the the term pracademic, and I thought that Mm -hmm. was particularly nice for orienting yourself within the landscape of academic narratives and and thinking patterns that we all have. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
2: you know, part of that, it seems to me, is it links a bit, yeah, your one hand on academic knowledge and this other term, which was evident in when I was looking through your list of publications in your bio, which is stewardship. Mm -hmm. And,. I think stewardship, I'm interested to hear what you think the term means for you, mm-hmm. on one hand, because I, I, it seems that there are other terms which can mean similar things, things like management uh, or governance, and, and then you have this other word, stewardship. What, what is this particular context? And is that linked somehow to your understanding of sustainability, which seems then oriented towards more of a an equitable or a justice-driven approach to... Mm-hmm. Social ecological systems thinking or hmm. social ecological systems research, and yeah perhaps you could elaborate a little on that i'm really curious
1: hmm. yeah, thanks, sure, you guys are asking awesome questions i'm really enjoying this It's It's just a nice opportunity to reflect and, and question why i've chosen the things i've chosen along the way um, yeah stewardship wow it's it's a uh, kind of I rue the day I picked it up because I just can't shake it off anymore. <laughs> um, it's, it's an incredibly contested and messy concept for various reasons in a different context. Firstly, just to say that, yes, the reason I, I've chosen or I work with that concept a little bit more than management and governance, for example, and I agree that the, the three are very similar overlapping concepts, is because of this kind of realization for myself how I want to center people in my work. So I'm interested in landscape management. I'm interested in sustainable resource use in rural landscapes and catchments. I'm interested in sustainable agriculture. And in all those terms, the people have gotten lost. That's sort of how I felt. So the stewardship idea for me foregrounds the steward again, and does so, I think, in quite an aspirational way. So we don't always behave as good stewards. And many of our farmers are struggling to be good stewards. But by using the concept of stewardship, I think we're we're more focused on that potential for stewards to take that responsibility and to to develop that agency in relation to how they engage with the natural resource base. so that was something that I think i it was kind of an intuitive draw card to me in terms of the concept of stewardship, whereas management and governance for me felt quite sort of technocratic and policy-oriented and distant. I wanted to work with the stewards and the people who are actually stewarding the land or could be stewarding the land. Mm-hmm. So that was why I came to that concept. But in South Africa, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult concept to work with because it has very strong roots in the conservation policy space in South Africa. And that has, unfortunately, very strong historical a negative historical connotations in terms of dispossessing people of land for the sake of wildlife management, um, foregrounding sort of um, the colonial interests of, of hunters and conservators as opposed to natural resource users who've been living on the land for generations. A lot of issues in the conservation space um, in South Africa are, yeah, relate to social injustices. So you're asking whether it's a concept that I've come to more because of my interest in justice and equity, it's a difficult one for me in South Africa for those reasons. Um, so stewardship in South Africa is strongly associated with that conservation work. and and But at the same time, I think, so my call in one of my papers is for us to open up stewardship back to this idea of a more pluralistic understanding of things, because all of us in South Africa using natural resources are potential stewards, no matter which side of the conservation fence we sit on. So, um, yeah, and I, I kind of it did a bit of a, 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 full, a full circle in a way, but also um, a tautology in my PhD where one of my big findings out of my empirical research was the importance of refocusing stewardship work on stewards because it's actually become disconnected again. It's become all wrapped up in policy and regulations and kind of very spatial-oriented planning frameworks and, Again, we're losing the stewards because we're getting kind of caught up in the technical and and kind of political governance aspects of the work, rather than spending our time and money engaging very meaningfully with the stewards themselves. Um, so, this,
0: I'm sorry. Why do you think that's happening? Why, is there some kind of inevitable pull some tendency to? I mean, because I feel like it's, it's implied a little bit, maybe, in what you're saying is that we 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 were starting to pay more attention to communities and stewards and local folks, and now there's this this pull back like where does that come from do you think
1: yeah i think it's a tricky question to answer i think one of the things at least in south africa that we're realizing is that we we're sitting in this tension of planning competence versus action competence south african uh the system here in terms of natural resource management and um governance is heavily planning oriented so we put a huge amount of resources into planning processes very very kind of highly technical and competent planners sit all over our, our governance system and the formal governance system um, yet the ability to action those plans and to bring about change on the ground seems to be lacking and there isn't enough emphasis on training skills at the very basic kind of natural resource management level and so we're, that's the one reason I think that we've got away from from stewardship the people because we're so much so busy with stewardship the planning
2: <laughs> and the right.
1: policy and it's that sort of age old story of the gap between policy and and action or policy and practice so that's yeah. very much a part of it. Um, but I think the other part also is I think uh, in a way a lack of attention both from a research perspective but also again in the kind of policy and planning space to human agency and how human agency works and i don't think and that's why i think we really need to draw more on on social scientists to help us with that and to understand like what are the barriers to local stewards actually being able to change their practices or to being able to to respond to changing conditions around climate for example i don't think we Understand that from a, a research perspective, well enough yet, and I don't think those processes and what it takes to kind of catalyze and support them is well enough represented in our policy tools and frameworks and things. Yeah,
2: hmm. yeah. One of the one of the issues that I that I was been thinking about in the last year or two, and just just more informally with colleagues, and is is the idea of, of ethics. And then I, I saw that you mm-hmm. had wrote a piece mm-hmm. about that. And what are, what are the some of the ethical considerations when we're doing science with non-scientific actors. Mm -hmm. So when we're bringing in local communities and the purpose of engaging Mm -hmm. with those local communities is to create a change process, is to Mm -hmm. develop something which is actually going to change the way the world works outside of our academic thinking or -hmm. to work with policymakers or local governments Mm -hmm. or something like this. And and that, I think, opens up an entirely different box of ethical considerations, which might be considered in an ethical review at a standard university uh, review procedure. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what your reflections were um, throughout your PhD, as as it was largely framed as a as a transdisciplinary process. And what were some of those specific issues? And do you think those were limited to your particular case study or the South African context, or was that uh, something we can then take general reflections on for all of us trying to do transdisciplinary research in the future?
1: Mm. Thanks, Stefan. That's a very very important question, and yes, something I'm very passionate about. So I think the first The first time I stumbled across an ethical issue was in the very early stages of my PhD, and that's the book chapter that that I wrote with Georgina, was that I had to, so the very kind of conventional process at the university is that you take six months approximately to develop your research proposal, and attached to that is an application for ethical clearance to the university. So, and that is based on, on the, well, you have to submit an ethical clearance application if you're going to be engaging with so-called human subjects. I mean, the language there is already just so alienating and unhuman. It's unbelievable. But, (laughs) um, so I felt... That I was actually technically not allowed to engage with human subjects in those six months because I think the kind of conventional approach is that you're engaging with the literature to build your research proposal and develop your methodology and all of those things. But I had this very strong commitment of working with people and engaging with practitioners right from the start, if not before the start, because I'd actually been working before I did my PhD as a, as a practitioner with WWF. And so, yeah, we realized that I, that I was breaking the rules because I was engaging with people because I did a whole bunch of very informal interviews and did a lot of sort of participant observation and various kind of workshop spaces to to generate, um, to to kind of co-generate my research proposal and my questions because I wanted to make sure that the research was was of interest to the stewardship practitioner community as I framed it then. And to do that, I needed to engage with them. And so we wrote that book chapter about how we broke the rules of research ethics to engage with people in order to do research ethically, ironically, because from a transdisciplinary perspective, knowledge co-production is a more ethical mode of producing knowledge. in these kind of sustainability challenges where where the people we're working with are part of the, the complex system. So yeah, that was where it first started and it it kind of continued in a way because I then got, I got the ethical, we didn't discuss this in my ethical clearance application. We felt it was safer not to, um, we didn't trust the ethics committee to be able to come along with this complex process with us, but we wrote the Mm. book chapter, so it's out there now. But um, so I got ethical clearance for, for very standard sort of methods like surveys, uh, interviews, focus group discussions. But I I did a lot more than just that in my research. I mean, I embedded myself within NGOs to do my case studies in a participatory way. And I think at the moment, in South Africa at least, but I think it's the same all over the place. Our research ethics committees are just not ready for this kind of research. And we've been having a lot of discussions about that here at our university. There are a lot of researchers doing engaged work. For similar reasons as I outlined very early on in the conversation, because of the context we live in in South Africa, we just feel we can't afford to be alienated from the sustainability and social justice challenges on the ground. We have to research with people in a respectful way, in a co-productive way, and yeah, our research ethics systems are not ready for that. So we're busy where there's a small group of people that's thinking of, of sort of developing an alternative process and putting it to the research ethics committee here to see if we could pilot it or test it. Um, yeah and in the meantime what I sort of my take home out of my own experience was that we have two parallel processes at the moment actually in terms of doing research ethically. We have the procedural ethics which is developed and maintained and controlled by the university and to be honest, the reason they're doing that is risk management for themselves as a university. Yes, they're doing it to to support good research ethics in terms of people's ethical practice, but the main thing is to cover their own backs. Then there's everyday ethics on the other side. And that's what I'm trying to now bring into my own teaching with students is to say, yes, we need to tick these boxes and keep to the rules that the university wants us to do, but we need to take full responsibility for for what we're calling everyday ethics. So practicing ethical research, we're well, above the, the, defi- the confines of, of procedural ethics. Yeah. So that's sort of our reflection at the moment and how we're dealing with it, but it's the system's not working for us.
2: Yeah, I like the way of framing the procedural ethics versus the everyday ethics. I think that gets at a bit of the problem that, that most of the ethical reviews are a very dull and, and very heavy hammer trying to hit a very nuanced and place based and study based. Uh, interaction with other human beings (laughs) with other other people not human subjects human beings Um, and and we're very much part of yeah i mean that is evolving somehow within each project and um, i think the example that you give of the traditional academic study or preparation of the thesis is is typically engaging with the with the literature, and and I'm going to go and do that in a few weeks here. I'm going to go to Indonesia, and I'm going to meet with some of our partners, and part of that is to talk with them and to develop joint problem framing and to develop joint ideas for what they would view. Um, These these would be non-academic partners. Mm. and what they would view the, the benefits of our mm. research so that we can incorporate their ideas and we can think about that as we begin to plan and going going forward and we can develop a, a, to some extent to w- with some hope and much as we can to develop a co-produced vision for what we think that uh, the project can do yeah. and they're just not really prepared for that.
1: Yeah I think the other concept that's quite important in terms of the ethics conversation is the idea of relational ethics and that speaks to the fact that ethics is always a co-constructed thing and if we if we realize that it that it sits in relation that actually makes us realize that it that the paper products are, are one thing and you going to Indonesia and engaging with your partners there you'll be co-constructing the ethics of your practice there with them as well and it's something that that we have to negotiate on an ongoing basis with the people that we're researching with. Um, to make it real and make it, make it honest um, because otherwise it just becomes something that, that we've submitted something and ticked a box and got a code and it sits on the shelf and it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Um, yeah. Absolutely.
2: Did you I have any particular, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you're, you're, you and some colleagues were thinking about developing a new procedure for this. Did you have mm-hmm. any particular insights that you think are worth sharing about ways that we can go about this process perhaps in a better way?
1: Yeah, so I think um, what that alternative procedure would look like would be, in a way, laying out what what the usual kind of challenges are around procedural ethics versus what we experience in everyday ethics. And, so one of, and there'd be maybe five or six particular ones that we could all draw on that come out of our experiences. And one of them for us has been confidentiality, for example. So the issue of um, committing to keeping people anonymous in our research is more and more in South Africa kind of bumping up against a culture, an African culture, where that is an absolute bizarre idea. People participate in research and they want to get recognition for it and they want to be acknowledged and they want their photos to be in the reports and they want to be seen because they've contributed. So the idea of subject A says that he wants to, you know, restore his catchment is is in contradiction with what must most of the South African culture is in terms of identity and co- contribution to research? So that's one of the spaces, one of the aspects of kind of the the normal procedural ethics that we are wanting to challenge. Um, another one would be the idea of gatekeepers. So we have to get gatekeeper letters to say that um, we've got permission to research a particular social context. How can one person give permission on behalf of a whole bunch of others? So the way it currently goes is that if you want to do research in a town, you get a gatekeeper's letter from the municipality, as if the municipality can agree on behalf of all the residents of that town that they are willing to do the research. It's bizarre. So there are a couple of these things that are that we're we're going to challenge and and challenge but we need to be careful about it and why we want to do as a pilot is to offer alternatives because we recognize that it is again about the university covering their, keeping, like, reducing risk and reputational risk primarily. So then what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives to a confidentiality thing is to negotiate confidentiality and to get possibly a written agreement from people that they're willing and they really want their names and to get that in writing so then the university can have, you know, a piece of paper to to make sure that it has done things correctly. So it's kind of confronting those big things. Um, a third one is... as um, The do-no-harm principle, which is very prevalent in ethics because it comes out of medical ethics. And we want to turn that around and say, actually, not do-no-harm, but how about doing good? So let's actually do research that does good for people, which means we need to find out from them what good is and what they want to be part of. Mm. And, yeah, so just challenging some of these quite deeply entrenched research ethics principles, many of which have come from biomedical research, and putting them on their heads and offering alternatives to them.
0: Hmm. So... I have, uh, I want there's one topic I wanted to make sure we covered before, because I don't know how much time everyone has left. Um, so there was an ecology and society article that you, um, were the lead author on published last year entitled Collaborative Stewardship, Stewardship in Multifunctional Landscapes Toward Relational Pluralistic Approaches. And I understand this was done, and you, you schooled me on this pronunciation before we started the interview. Lankluf? Cl- the the, the long valley and this is in the eastern cape
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um so it 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 felt like the as i was reading some of this it it embodied a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about and i'm I'm actually very interested in one of your conclusions that you came to there about so this is a governance or i guess i'll say stewardship question for the sake of this
1: conversation Mm -hmm.
0: you are looking at um, kind of the feasibility, as I understand it, of of coordinating, of, of governing different stewardship activities across this landscape where, you know, these people over here, this sub as you say, is doing this thing, this sub is doing that thing. And, and use this term patchwork, and you, and you distinguish it from a blanket, which I think is very interesting. So you say <laughs> instead of having a blanket of governance or stewardship over this landscape, it's gonna be more of a patchwork of these folks kind of still doing this thing here, these other folks still doing this thing here. I find this fascinating because I, I think this remains uh, one of the key concepts and tensions in the study of environmental governance is top-down, mm-hmm. bottom-up, how do we, mm-hmm. we like all these bottom-up ideas, we wanna work with local folks, but then how, you know, scalability, how do you actually mm-hmm. manage a whole landscape, mm-hmm. and you have this, um, this quote, that if if you don't mind, I'm going to read because I just I, I liked it a lot and I I think it again it it reflects a lot of our discussions so far. You so, so you say diversity and differences between people should not be viewed as problems to be overcome, but as realistic starting points and potential sources of creativity and resilience in complex landscapes. That's like that's an extraordinary piece of writing there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's we can apply it to our own discussions of the othering of scientists, right? So. Mm-hmm. Understanding difference and, and also this the literature on path dependence and hysteresis mm-hmm. and all these ideas that look, folks, mm. th- we are where we are, mm. and so that we need to take that into account in deciding where we're going to go from here. Mm. So I'd love to um, hear from you, like where this idea of a patchwork came from.
1: Yeah, I want to. Can I? I just want to get up and get a book from my shelf to be able to answer your question. If you don't sure, mind, sure. Yeah, take your time. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Yeah, I wonder if like, I get the sense that we we need to like, simplify things, right? And then there's this continual impulsing of ideas, where we try to then generalize like the top down bottom up, and then we're going to slowly over the next, whatever foreseeable future, we're going to then try to pull that apart into different sub themes and break that apart. And then it's going to come back together again. And, and then you have this continual reshaping of ideas, as they evolve over time. And I, I wonder if that's, a trend I would say in, in, in narrative thinking that ideas consolidate and then they break apart as we realize the, the, that we have to make them more nuanced and then to make sense of the nuance and all the scattered pieces we have to bring them back together into mm-hmm. consolidated ideas and then this is kind of just an evolving uh, flow of, of the aggregation and then disaggregation of ideas just a, just a little thought as you were explaining there just a little yeah. thought bomb <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Not a bomb. That doesn't fit in, our, in the vibe of our conversation. No. <laughs> i, I got to think of another
0: analogy now. I mean, yeah, we were going from like patchwits and blankets and warm and fuzzy things to like, yeah.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> so the book that I went to fetch, obviously your podcast listeners won't be able to see the video image, but um, oh, wow. it's a little book, a tiny book. I was involved in a project last year with some colleagues on making tiny books. And um, I think they posted a YouTube video so you can look up tiny books and it's a, it's a really nifty methodology for, for helping take big complex ideas and bring them down to what really matters. And the idea of the blanket and the patchy place. Um, so the, 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 na- the title of this book is a story of hope from a patchy place. And the idea of the, the patchwork blanket for me, I think it kind of coalesced based on two main sources of inspiration. So I really enjoy Frances Cleaver's work on institutional bricolage. I don't know if you've heard of it. She she's a really great researcher who's done a lot of work um, on institutions and governance in, in the global south and questioning some of our very kind of mainstream frameworks around institutions and governance and Um, Her idea of bricolage, I think, was what kind of prompted me to start thinking more around mosaics and puzzles and blankets and patchworks and things. Um, And then my experiences in the Lankloof. So working in that place, building that map that you that's that's there's a map in my paper where I've colored in each of the sub communities across the landscape in a different color. And that map became such an important boundary object for the work I was doing with the practitioners in that landscape because we suddenly saw the heterogeneity and diversity of that landscape, and it, it it actually gave us a little bit of comfort and peace because we've been really struggling to understand why it is that people don't want to collaborate and are struggling. We're struggling to bring people together around the table, as we call it, that big blanket type table, and and it is a patchy place. So the cliff is a place with with different groups, different land uses, different interests, deep historical divides between race groups, between people of different Um, socioeconomic kind of um, uh, yeah from different socioeconomic groups and the the place being patchy felt like a problem so when I was taking some of the the frameworks from the governance literature taking for example trying to take the design principles from Ostrom's work and applying them there just things got stuck and it was frustrating and it felt like it wasn't working and I realized that that these patchy places and the multifunctionality of them and the diversity of of people and the fuzziness of the boundaries and the the mixed upness of the resource and the resource users was making it very difficult for me to apply some of those frameworks and recognizing and sort of making peace with the patchiness of the place and um, seeing that there was actually a lot of potential for us to, to try and do things differently and frame them differently and um, use that patchiness and diversity as, as a source of, of, of um kind of moving forward rather than waiting to resolve those conflicts before we could move forward was was a relief and and I think quite an important finding because there are a lot of places that are like that. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that was that's a little bit where it came from. So the idea from from Francis Cleaver's work around institutional bricolage, I think, was the first thing that really helped me appreciate the importance of situating our research in the realities of, of context and place and and recognizing the agency of local people in in shaping their world and in in building institutions for what they do, yeah. So it's it is quite aspirational and it is quite in some ways I think quite idealistic, but I also think it's an important call for us as scientists to to be able to step into context and really work with what's there. So. The little tiny book, um, maybe if we could ever have a follow-up, I could read the story, The Story of Hope from a Patchy Place, it was all about basically recognizing the agency of people in place and and as researchers trying to to work with that rather than kind of imposing mm. frameworks on people that might actually not fit.
0: I like that, making peace with patchiness. Can you, um, just very quickly, because again, thanks, people will want to um, hear your take on it. I've understood this idea of bricolage as being Kind of taking what's there, reassembling it and making something new that wasn't there. Yeah. Is that more or less what we're talking about? Yeah, okay.
1: I think that's a pretty good description. Yeah. Okay. And and making it work for you. I think okay. That's an important part of the idea of bricolage. Is is, is re, reshaping something to make it work for you. Yeah.
2: Okay.
0: All right. Stefana, do you have anything else you want to make sure that you cover in our time together?
2: Well, I would just be interested to hear in what's what's next and what is your vision for your research agenda if you had either you want to give it in a more kind of yeah, visionary way and something that you would really like to do or to give an example of what's actually, you have a project, uh, which you're going to be working on in the next months or years. Um, mm. Just to give an idea of where your thoughts are and, and where you're going to be investing your time in, in the next year or so. Okay. Thanks,
1: Stefan. Um, I'm currently very involved in a project called the Tsitsa Project. And I could also share a link to that project's website um, afterwards. And it's it's a landscape initiative in the rural Eastern Cape. And I think it's it's helping me think through kind of the future of my research, being involved in that project, where we're trying to draw on a lot of, again, I think quite aspirational frameworks. So the, the kind of social ecological systems framework broadly, but then looking at some of the, the work from IPES around human nature relations and Um, uh, how humans, uh, nature's contributions to people, some of those frameworks, um, drawing on um, strategic adaptive management, which is kind of an evolution of the adaptive management frameworks, Um, drawing on participatory, monitoring, evaluation, reflection, and learning frameworks, so trying to do M and E in a more reflective, so we're bringing together, and transdisciplinarity, we're bringing together some, a couple of these very big, exciting ideas that are sitting in the sustainability and social ecological literature Right down to earth in a place that is uh, very patchy, <laughs> a place that is um, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of unemployment, there's a huge land degradation challenge, there's very very little economic activity, um, and we're trying to bring these big ideas from the literature in, into a place and and support a shift in the way in which natural resource management is is happening there, and that project is is exciting and very difficult because. we're we're very much aware that we as scientists from the outside are bringing these ideas. And I just said just now, we shouldn't impose our frameworks on on local places. But we do feel that that the frameworks we're drawing on and bringing together do offer a new way of doing things that could help and support um, change in that place. So that's a very exciting challenge. And I think going back to Stefan, you picked up on my idea of Pracademic, I really just want to keep building my own skills and capacity in that space as a pracademic, academic and it's, it's very challenging because the academic system we currently sit in and the ethics review process is just one example of it, is disabling to pracademic academic work and to engaged research, and there's so much work to be done within our institutions, within the way we teach, within the way we engage with um, postgraduate students. To, to enable that kind of work. So in a way, that's very much part of what I see as my kind of vision and life's work is to to be part of those institutional changes that can enable more engaged, meaningful, respectful research with people. And then the, the more kind of the actual research question side of it is for me then also around how to take the ideas of these big frameworks and then also the, the philosophical ideas of things like critical realism and complexity thinking, how to take those ideas and bring them to life in a very practical, real way with people and not just for people, but with people. And it's just such cool things to say out loud and to be excited about, but the actual doing of them is incredibly difficult. And I'm really grateful to have some places where there are local people who are willing to to figure this stuff out with us and who want to be part of of trying these things out. So my partners at Living Lands are amazing, and I'm so grateful to them that we can continue to work together and the partners in the TITSA project. Um, yeah, to have to have these engaged research relationships is absolutely a blessing, and um, I'm super excited about what can come out of it, but also completely overwhelmed by the enormity of the challenge that we're <laughs> setting ourselves. Yeah, so that's a quick unprepared response rambly one to your questions.
0: that was terrific the idea the idea this it's cool to say out loud but how do we do it right like i think <laughs> I, that those thoughts occur to me in some form or other like at least once a day
2: um <laughs> definitely so and rel-
1: mean, we have to yeah. write those papers and they need to be published the pdf game i think you mentioned before we went I live did, yeah. um, michael like yeah, we've we've got to say all those things, but geez, doing them on the ground is a whole other ball game. It really and is. South Africa is an incredibly challenging but very important place for us to be doing this kind of work. And it's not the easy part. I'm grateful part. to be able to. Yeah, yeah. It's but it's the more um, meaningful part, and mm. the more um, the part that that gives more back actually from in the long run. Yeah.
0: So one final question I want to ask, building on your responses, I, I totally agree that this is an important direction for academics to be taking, the pre-academic direction. Is there, are there communities within academia that are, that are striving to do this, right? Because, you know, we have traditional academic communities and uh, societies, whatever we're calling them. Mm-hmm. Um, are there those things now for, for in this kind of space? And if not, should there be? And how, how might we do that?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot, but. Um <laughs> I think so I'm part of one specific community, so I find the PECS network incredibly helpful for this work. So that's the program on ecosystem change and society, which is um is just kind of getting gearing up for a new phase of its work. And I found that network incredibly helpful. So there's a big focus in that in that academic network on place based research on engaged research on transdisciplinarity and there's a very strong cohort of young kind of emerging researchers in that space i think who are asking the same kind of questions as me and grappling with the same kind of stuff so i found that a really really helpful network um more broadly i think i must say i do enjoy the twitter sphere for this kind of conversation i think Mm. there's a lot of really useful conversation that happens on twitter amongst academics around some of these challenges that we face and I find that very comforting to see that so many of us are experiencing those things, and something we haven 't touched on at all in this in this conversation, which is very very closely related are all the issues around self care and mental health and family and all those more personal and real issues that that I think are even more challenging in transdisciplinary and engaged research because we 're already stretching ourselves so much to to be able to do all these extra things that we're currently not rewarded for necessarily. So mm-hmm. yeah, just to kind of acknowledge as well that I think um as much as this work is exciting and, and rewarding, it is particularly challenging to to maintain a work life balance um in the in 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 the academic system, which currently doesn't support and reward this more engaged participatory type work. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like I, I'm telling my students, you know, the less time you have for a break, the more you need one, go for walks. And then sometimes I, I forget, you know, it. Uh, the hardest person to convince to take your advice is yourself, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah, we all, we all have to do that. It's easier to tell other people what to do.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But also just one last comment on terms of community. I must say I've been, and you mentioned how much time I've spent at Rhodes University in my, in my education. I think this is, I'm really grateful to be at this university. And I think sometimes the smaller universities are a little bit more agile and able to adapt. So I must acknowledge that there are a lot of people at my university who are who are talking about these issues. And our university itself has a very strong community engagement center. And we have a lot of um, emphasis on community engagement. It is now part of promotion criteria. And so this is a university where these kind of things are slowly changing. And I'm very grateful for that and grateful to have had Amazing or have amazing mentors, um, senior academics who've gone before me and have started opening up these spaces and made it easier for me as a young academic. Um, so there really are pockets of pockets of of, of creativity and, and innovation at, at all our universities, I think, and it's just a, a matter of kind of stitching those pockets together. Those to patches. The, the patches The patches <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. to look after each other and help each other and, and encourage each other in this kind of work.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, essnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on. Until next time.